Welcome to a new podcast edition of the Social Life of Energy. There is a jubilant birthday party going on next door, so if you happen to get a whiff of it through this recording, I hope it puts you in a happy place. Citizens' support for our collective move towards zero-carbon societies is obviously important. At minimum, buy-in is necessary, but if you take it one step further, it is also an excellent opportunity to actually revitalize democracy. But what do people support? One survey might find broad support for bold climate action, while another might tap into the skepticism and anger of the proverbial gilet jaune. Or take the infamous value action gap. People profess wanting to take the car less, but subsequently can be found using the car just as much. One problem is that surveys measure a rather artificial situation, namely, A respondent answers questions posed on the telephone, written on a piece of paper, or presented on a screen. All situations divorced from everyday life. Our values aren't isolated entities that we pick from the shelf whenever someone asks for them. Values are acts of evaluation, and acts are necessarily contextual. We act in and upon a situation. If we want to understand how people come to value one thing over another, or struggle to live up to their own standards, we therefore need contextual methods as well. Contextual methods mean research that can show us how people relate to the people and things around them, how they handle them, deal with them, and how they subsequently reflect on these interactions, evaluate them. For a good example of what such research looks like, we can turn to a 2016 article by Kathleen Butler and her colleagues. They want to understand what it means when we talk about the choices people make to consume more or less energy. Choices are made by people in a context. Just as with values, we cannot assume a detached actor with a view from nowhere, making impartial and fully rational evaluations about the environmentally best course of action. So instead, Butler and colleagues ask in what contexts such choices are pragmatically made. Take the following reflection from one of their interviewees, Debbie, on her laundry routines. I would have a choice not to wash clothes, but this generation, your generation and my daughter's generation, they wash things every day. They're working clothes every day. They have showers every day, and that is the way that they have been brought up. That's the way that they don't know any different. Whereas my mother's generation, their clothes, their outer clothes, weren't washed hardly ever. They used to have woolen stuff and things like that, and and washing was a real struggle once a week, so they never washed anything at the drop of a hat. So that's the difference, is that we are used to having cheap available energy all the time. As the authors conclude... Debbie sees her daughter's choice as more constrained as her own, as it is made in a context of, quote, widespread available energy, washing machines, forms of clothing, end quote, and, quote, expectations arising from interaction with others regarding showering and washing clothes every day, end quote. 
Debbie has more of a choice because she can detach herself a little more from that context, having seen other days. Another interviewee, Kara, 35 years old, also talks about the multiple logics tugging at her rationality. She relates how, since having had a baby eight months ago, she no longer thinks about energy consumption at all. She just does whatever her role as parent requires of her. Energy, in other words, is not just about our environmental values, but is, and I quote, connected to notions of, for example, wanting to provide the best or the necessary for our families, which in turn is connected to wider social structures that serve to reproduce what constitutes the best, the necessary in different contexts. These examples already make quite clear that energy values cannot be easily reduced to an I or nay to sustainable energy. Divorced from context, it would be difficult to say what the implications of an I or nay for policy should be. We need to know more from people. So if not consent or rejection, what role can people play in public deliberations about the future of our energy system? Public deliberation is also contextual. Research over the last decade plus has investigated how people assemble their opinions and take their positions in public debates in response to particular issues and in engagement with physical objects of concern. We bring a piece of technology in our home, we are asked to comment on a renovation project, and these new interactions provoke a train of thought that we put together as it leaves the station. Values are not pre-given, but contextual. That means they are also open to change. We find excellent examples of this in a 2018 article by Mariana Rieckhauk and her colleagues. In their interviews with Tesla owners, prosumers in smart grids and owners of photovoltaic panels, they observe how people evolve their stances. Thus, in the case of the Tesla owners, many, and I quote, say that they acquire their vehicles not because of environmental or climate concerns. By driving the vehicle, and through mundane encounters with criticism, however, many report the emergence of profound environmental attitudes, especially after reading up on environmental and energy-related aspects of the vehicle. Smart grid technologies show the same potential of engendering transformation. I quote again, on the one hand, many respondents highlight how mundane routines such as showering, laundry, and cooking are static and very difficult to change. On the other hand, they also evoke instances where smart energy technologies have enabled them to engage with, challenge, and sometimes change such routines. End of quote. So why did people evolve their ideas and practices? Their Teslas and their smart grid technologies brought energy out of the obscure background, turning it into something, quote-unquote, visible and tangible. Energy became a newly perceived issue. In response, some people sought out new knowledge and developed new practices. They started timing laundry or dishwashing differently, or established new household rules about how energy is to be used. 
Each article has a slightly different story about the context of choice. Butler and others emphasize the constraints on people's choices, social and material structures like cheap energy or hygiene norms, and consequently suggest that as a policymaker, you'll want to target these constraints. But their point is not that you should find the levers that will activate people's environmental values. Instead, we should look at the values embedded in our societal infrastructures, say, how bike-friendly our roads are. For Rikauk and others, constraints can be productive. They can generate new ideas and feelings, whether in the form of opportunities for people to give shape to their individual responsibility, or in the form of frustrations in people's routines. We should therefore capitalize on these engagements and design energy technology that allows a wider diversity of people to have those new engagements and open up energy to more broadly shared debate and dialogue. On this, both articles agree. Other choices are possible when people are able to extract themselves somewhat from their routines and their taken-for-granted assumptions. The political relevance of these insights about context is therefore as follows. Instead of waiting for people to adopt the environmental values necessary to support climate policy, we should create spaces of practical involvement, material participation, in Rikauk and her colleagues' words, which allow people to develop their ideas, invite them into public debate, and therefore give them a sense of ownership of the transition. this, you might think, hmm, extracted from routines, shake up taken for granted assumptions. That kind of rings a bell. Isn't that what most of the world has gone through with COVID-19? People must really be questioning things now. Yelmer Mommers from the Dutch platform for journalism, The Correspondent, argues as much. I quote, when the coronavirus crisis hit the ground, this lesson really hit home. We realize we are not only connected to nature, as fickle and cold as it can be, but that we also depend on each other. That turned out well. Suddenly, we were able to cooperate to protect the health of others, others we often didn't even know. We temporarily sacrificed our freedom because science said it was necessary. And our politicians listened to that science. COVID-19 showed us, above all else, how fast we can change when worse comes to worst like now. After the crisis, we all need a vacation. Saving the world is a little inconvenient right now. But maybe we can reflect from the comfort of our hammock about whether over the next few months and years we're going to listen to the voice inside that longs to go back to normal, or the voice that says we can't because it's a little strange now to believe in the delusion of a person trying to get around the limits of nature when you just face the utter impossibility of doing so. End quote. There is some anecdotal evidence, just by opening the lifestyle sections of your favorite newspaper, that all of this did make some people ponder the error of our ways. There is also anecdotal evidence that others have learned nothing. So, in the light of all that has happened, let's dip our toes into the sea of knowledge about the ways of man that is social science and ask, if there is any basis to assume that indeed 
Extracting people from their routines opens up space for new ideas and new practices. Because, as it so happens, there is a whole body of knowledge about so-called life transitions. Moving house, becoming a parent, retiring. My toes will dip into just two articles here. One by Kate Burningham and Susan Venn, published this year. And another by Fiona Shirani and her colleagues from 2017. See the show notes for references. Both refer to the habit discontinuity hypothesis which is a great name for a theory, and basically states what I just said about extraction and new space for reflection. Or, as the UK Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs puts it, cited in Burningham and Venn, it has been found that particular life events represent moments of disruption to people's routines, which in turn can serve as windows of opportunity, in which to deliver interventions when people may be more able or willing to do things differently. A quick take by yours truly. This is an idea premised on the notion that we should consume our way out of climate catastrophe. As a matter of policy, rather than one of sociological curiosity, it doesn't seem to be a particularly useful idea. Because life transitions by their very nature are exceptional and thus hardly suitable for enacting systemic change. The longer take is by the authors. And they conclude that the window of opportunity may not even be very representative of what crucial life events actually look like. I quote, Our research illustrates that daily routines continue to shift for both groups of participants, both the new parents and new retirees. Such ongoing changes lead us to caution against adoption of the terminology of a moment of change and indicate the limitations of studies which seek to measure changes in everyday behaviors before and after a transition. The point is the same as the one by Butler, Dickauk and their respective colleagues. Context is decisive and context cannot be reduced to simply one element, a baby, a job, or a house, or a virus for that matter. I'm sure this point will sound reasonable to all of you, given what the past few months have looked like, as we were continuously scrambling to adapt and find better working solutions. All right, let me make this more concrete. I'll take the case of Sarah, as discussed by Shirani and her co-authors. Sarah, a nurse living in, in London town, really wants to commute by bike and cherished doing so with her daughter when she was still young and tries to save heating costs as much as possible in her rented apartment but hates having to inflict a cold apartment on her daughter. Then two things happened. She got a different job and her car got nicked. Biking to her new job wasn't really an option, initially because she needed to find a place to securely lock her bike, but subsequently and more importantly, because that particular bit of London felt quite dangerous to bike through. The loss of the car also meant that she couldn't drive to the supermarket for a big shop. So she started ordering online, opting for the environmental delivery option, which batches together deliveries to the same area. After she got a new car, though, she kept on buying groceries online because it was convenient, actually cheaper, and environmentally friendly. In other words, one may have preferences, and in the case of anticipated life transitions, such as having a baby or retiring, one may have expectations and ambitions. 
But when circumstances actually change, often in unpredicted ways, such preferences are re-evaluated. When disruptive circumstances then disappear, many revert back to how they did things before. This is at least what Burningham and Venn found in their interviews. However, Sarah's case also shows that people might carry over some of the things that they learned into their new re-established normal. To sum up, it's still the system, stupid. Also with life transitions. If you don't enable sustainable practices, say by making a safe commute possible, you're not going to see them. Even if people have been shaken out of their slumber and awoken to the blinding light of the impending climate collapse. And even then, some people have other shit going on. So either be patient or adjust the system with them specifically in mind too. Now, what is unique about this coronavirus situation is that we've all gone through some massive disruption. A disruption, in other words, of systemic proportions. That has allowed proactive policymakers, citizens and politicians to puncture some holes in that system, which may actually outlast the crisis. We've seen several cities considering permanent closure of certain roads to car traffic, and companies are busily contemplating letting employees work more from home, which can significantly reduce energy demand too. But if you, as a policymaker or politicians, have been a little less proactive, do not worry, there is time yet. Everything is still a little, or a lot, in disarray. There's still plenty of friction, and that, we now know, makes for fertile ground for joint reflection. We've all participated materially in the pandemic, and our minds are ripe for new ideas. Now, the hammock might be a good place to cultivate some of them, but in fact, Mommers has a better idea. Citizen climate panels. As you might have heard, France just concluded its national panel with some 150 recommendations. And while Macron may have refused to adopt the few that would have truly upended the status quo, I'd say overall it was a successful undertaking. The concept is that the policy ideas from these panels enjoy more legitimacy because they don't come from the Parisian top down. Let's see how that plays out. If you know anything about how these panels are perceived, let me know. In the meanwhile, every jurisdiction can enact its own climate panel, because every level of administration has its own competencies. This, in turn, allows us to capitalize on the space of reflection, devise better informed local policies, because the devil is always in the detail, and ensure greater legitimacy of the broader transition. Note, finally, that what these panels shouldn't do is talk about how you can live more sustainably. They should deal with infrastructural change, and how to make sure changes empower people with different needs, whether that pertain to commutes or people in their care. I'd be really interested to hear from you if you are currently doing research or involved in an ongoing project and you're talking to people about how they might want to do things differently post-corona. Let me know if you're noticing trends. Or if you get to enjoy a hammock over the next few weeks and you come back with inspiration, I'd love to hear about that too. For now, best wishes. Take care. Till next time.